Acts 13, starting in verse 13. It says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any words of exhortation for the people, say on. So we saw last week, um, where is this stuff? There it is. We saw last week uh, where Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch of Syria, different place than Antioch of, of Pisidia. So they were here, right? Holy Spirit calls them. Holy Spirit says, separate them to me, Paul and Barnabas. Sends them on their way. They go to Salimus, the island of Cyprus. They do some ministry here. They, when they get to Paphos, and that, they do the ministry there. If you remember, they're with the pro-council, and there's this guy, Bar-Jesus, who is a false uh, prophet and is trying to keep them from explaining the gospel to the pro-council. Paul rebukes him pretty hardcore, gives him this, this miracle happens through Paul to blind the guy, and the pro-council gets saved, okay? So they're leaving Paphos, okay? And they're, they're coming up here, they've sailed up to here, Atelia. And then it says they went to Perga, but obviously they had to go to Atelia first, that's the port. And they end up in this place here, Antioch of Pisidia, okay? Now notice that right there, Galatia, what does that sound like to you? Galatians, right? Okay. The book of Galatians was written to the churches in this area. Antioch is kind of the southernmost part of this area of Galatia. That's going to be important when we go on. All right? But before we go on, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to um, get as much out of your word as possible. And I pray, God, that you would give me the grace to to get through this in a quick way, uh, but in a way that isn't confusing or too hard to keep up with, Lord. And we pray above all things that you would teach us and inspire us, Lord, to um, to trust your Holy Spirit to lead us to take the gospel out further. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what we're seeing. We're seeing Paul and Barnabas continuing on their first journey. And it's interesting because here we see in verse 13, it says, when Paul and his party set sail. And before this time, it's been when Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul did something. And you can see it's been this kind of switch where Paul's the main guy. And from this point on, in the book of Acts, Paul's going to be the focal point. Luke's going to focus on what God's doing through Paul. Well, when, when he, they go into a synagogue, as they did, and as we explained last week, they get this opportunity, because they were well-known guys, they were recognizable guys, probably by the way they dressed, to speak in a word of exhortation. And so what happens? Paul stands up, verse 16. Then Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. When he says, you who fear God, that's a reference to what they call God-fearers, or these would have been Gentiles that were near Jews. What that means is they were Gentiles who, who uh, believed in the God of Israel. They respected uh, the moral superiority of, of what that God said that we needed to do. And so they would sort of follow the moral law and they would listen to the teachings of the synagogue, but they hadn't been circumcised or become full Jews. But they really did fear the God uh, of Israel. And so they would be often in the synagogue, especially in an area like this that was uh, hardcore Gentile. And so Paul begins to preach, verse 17, he says, The God of this people, Israel, 
chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out. So Paul starts his exhortation by reminding these guys of the Exodus. Okay, remember these guys were uh, the God of, uh, or the, the people of Israel were in Egypt as slaves. When, he's, when the Bible says God, exalt, when Paul says God exalted them, he's talking about the fact that God uh, built them into a great nation. They went from 75 people to about 3 million in the 400 years they spent in, uh, in Egypt. But in due time, he pulls them out through Moses. And what happens? Verse 18. Now, for a time, for about 40 years, he went with, or, I'm sorry, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. So he, he reminds the, the audience, okay, now after God delivers Israel out of Egypt, they wander the wilderness 40 years. And you guys, if you know anything about the Bible, you know the stories. They were rebellious. They were complaining all the time about God. And God put up with it. He was merciful to them. And then it says, I can find it, I lost my place. Uh, verse 19, yeah. And it says, And when he, that's God, had destroyed the seven nations, the land of Canaan, he distributed the, their land to them by allotment. In other words, God helps them defeat the Canaanites or the nations that are in, the Can- uh, in that land of Canaan and delivers their, or distributes the land to the Israelites. Verse 20. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Now, Samuel's the same guy who wrote first and second Samuel. And afterward, they asked for a king. They told Samuel, we want a king. And so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, when God removed him, notice it says, and he raised up for them David as king, to whom God gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now, seven verses there, and in seven verses, Paul's covered 530 years of history. But he's done this because he knew the guys that were listening to him in the synagogue would have gone, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's good, oh yeah, I remember that, oh that's good, good story, oh yeah. And he stops with David, because David was the sort of pinnacle. Yeah, David, King David, he was the man, he was a poet, he was a warrior, we love David. So that was all about David. So when he stops there, you can imagine, you can maybe picture the scene of all these guys in the synagogue going, yes, yes, brother, very good, mm, yes, this is why we're the exalted ones, this is why we're the people of God, we have David, you know. And they're, 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 they're almost probably puffed up with pride about their nation's history. So he goes on, and Paul says, verse 23, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior Jesus. And after John, that's John the Baptist, had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think uh, I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Now, if you remember from the Gospels, the Jews all, the Jewish people, I should say, all respected John the Baptist. They all saw him as a prophet. The Jewish leaders, not so much, but the Jewish people did. And so Paul's kind of following a similar pattern that Jesus would follow, reminding Israel of her history, reminding, saying, this is what God's been doing in you for all these hundreds of years, all these many, many generations, really thousands of years. This is what God's been doing in your life. And it reminds them of John and how John pointed to Jesus. 
Now, what he's saying here really clearly, because remember, these guys were thinking, okay, David was the man, and what we love about David as well was that God had promised David there will not cease to be uh, someone who rules in Israel from your seed. Now, there's different reasons we won't get into today because of time that they had almost kind of given up on that, but they were still hoping one day the Messiah would come. This chosen king of gods, this one that would come from, uh, from, from David's seed. This ancestor of David. And Paul's saying, don't you get it? It's Jesus. And he came as a savior, as a deliverer. Not a political deliverer, but a spiritual one. And he brings it up to this point. Then in verse 26, he begins to say, okay, now this is where he wants them to begin to think about responding. He says, men and brethren, the son of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their their rulers, because they did not know him or recognize him, notice, nor even the voices of the prophets who are read every Sabbath and have fulfilled them in condemning him. Do you understand what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, listen, you have to understand, you guys are the, are the family of Abraham. This is your history. You, you guys who fear God, this is the history of, of the work of God that you, you fear in his people's lives. The reason Jesus was crucified was this, Paul's saying, because they didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah, and listen, they didn't recognize the voice of their prophets. Now, let me ask you a question. Did the Jews, especially the first century Jews, did they know the word of God? Did they know scripture? Jesus said they searched the scriptures daily, right? Because they thought in them. He says, you search the scriptures thinking in them you find eternal life. But what was the problem? He said, but these things are they, these are they that testify of me. He said to the Sadducees, who would have been not so much like the Pharisees who believed in all the law and the prophets, but just focused on the five books of Moses. He said to the Sadducees, Jesus said, you err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. See, for all the, the sort of quoting of scripture these guys would do and all the authority of God that these guys would often do, they were deaf to the voice of the prophets. They were deaf to what God was actually saying in his word. So they killed the Messiah. Now, it kind of does sort of remind us about how important it is for us to actually know what the Bible says, right? <laughs> I mean, we don't want to make the same mistake. <laughs> we, we don't want to be those that say, you know, we, we don't recognize God when he shows up in our life because we don't know what God's actually said in his word. There's a lot of people today who want to have an experience with God, and they, they think, oh, God's doing this, and oh, God's doing that, but they don't recognize who God really is because they don't listen to his word, the voice of his prophets. That's what these guys were doing. Now, but Paul also says in doing so, they're actually fulfilling the prophecies that the prophets made. But the fact that they killed him. Notice, it says, verse 28, And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning Jesus, they took him down from the tree, laid him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead, and he was seen uh, for many days by those who came up uh, came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Now, up to this point, Paul's speaking in the synagogue, and he's just kind of giving the history of the gospel. This is Paul's trying to show them, this is what God's been doing up to the point that we are standing here before you today. That's kind of what he's trying to bring them up to. Here's, here's how we got here. 
Now he's wanting to be clear that this that, that not only is the that Jesus fulfills God's promise to David about having that king, but also the fact that Jesus suffered fulfills prophecy. I'm sure you, how many of you guys have read Isaiah 53? Yeah, a lot of you guys. I'd really encourage you to read it if you haven't read it before. This is this is from the New Living Translation, just in case for you guys who are really familiar, it's kind of a fresh way to, to listen to this paraphrase. This is what the scripture says. Uh, hundreds of years before Christ came on the scene. And by the way, you guys ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yes? When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a, a whole version of Isaiah intact. Uh, and that's dated 100 years before the time of Christ. And it says almost exactly what we would read here. Listen to this. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was, it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, uh, were a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Does that not sound like Jesus? Written uh, hundreds of years before Christ even came on the scene. In other words, when Paul's talking about here to the synagogue, these guys in the synagogue, he's saying, you've got to understand, this is what the prophets said would happen. They, would say, they said, we would despise the Messiah and he would suffer. It was part of God's plan. It was all going to be laid out in history. So, moving on, verse 32. Paul goes on. And we declare to you glad tidings, literally good news, that the promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled for us, uh, uh, for us their children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now he's quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Now, what he's saying here is not that when Jesus rose from the dead, that he became the Son of God. He's not saying that, okay? What he's saying here is that when Jesus rose from the dead, it proved that he was indeed the only begotten Son of God. That's what's going on. So Paul's kind of shifting gears in his message. He's going from talking about the history of the gospel to focusing more clearly on the person of the gospel. And both of these things are important because if we're going to talk to people about Jesus, we need to talk about the historical Jesus. The fact that we're not talking about just this idea that we have that kind of floats around evangelicalism or something that we've inherited. This is historical reality. That God has been working in his people in the world to bring a people to himself. And that pinnacle was with the person of Jesus. So the Paul is switching now, not just from the history, but let's focus on who this person is. What did this person do? Why is he so important? And he begins by saying, listen, as the Psalms predicted, when the Messiah would come, he would be God's only begotten son. The author of Hebrews says a similar thing. Check this out. Hebrews chapter 1. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to, uh, be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, God says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now this is important. 
Because if, if Jesus was a created being, if God the Son was not God the Son, but just somehow the Son of God, and not actually a deity, God would have never say, worship Him. But the Scriptures are clear. Jesus comes on the scene, worship Him. Why? Because He's the only begotten Son. He is God the Son. Are you guys following me? Right. So Paul is, is, is bringing this up, and then in verse 34... What does it say? Paul goes on to say, And that he, God, raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. Now he quotes Isaiah 55, 3. I will give you the sure mercies or blessings of David. Thus he says in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, verse 10, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And then Paul helpfully, thankfully, gives us the commentary. Verse 36, here's what this means, he says, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But whom God raised up saw no corruption. In other words, what Paul's saying is, when David makes this writes the psalm, Psalm 16, and he's talking about that his holy one, his anointed king, will not see corruption. He couldn't have been speaking of himself, because guess what? The dude died, and his body started to rot. But Jesus rose from the third day. In other words, Paul's wanting these guys in the synagogue to understand, listen, the resurrection even of Jesus fulfills prophecy. God said, here's what's going to happen. The Messiah is going to suffer, and guess what's going to happen after that? He's going to Rise from the dead. God's going to raise him from the dead. And that's exactly what God did. This is what Paul's trying to get across to these guys. Verse 38. Therefore, Paul says, Oop, I went too far. Paul says, Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, remember who Paul's talking to. Paul's talking to a bunch of Jewish people, most of whom probably feel like, hey, I do keep the law well, many of whom probably don't, and a bunch of Greeks who haven't yet made that sort of full Commitment, they haven't been circumcised, they haven't obeyed that law, you know. And so they fear God, they, they reverence God, they know that the God of Israel is the great and high God, and that, that, that his, his, the, the, the moral stance of His law is right, and they should follow it, but they, like us, struggle to do so. They say, how can we ever be innocent before this great and good God, when His great and good law that we see as good, we can't keep? This is the goodness of the good news. That forgiveness and justification come through Jesus. This is it. It doesn't get better than this. When we talk about forgiveness, forgiveness, well, the word forgiveness really means to, to forgive, means to send away. And when we talk about forgiveness in a biblical sense, we're talking about um, God looking at us and saying, the thing that was between me and you, I'm sending away. I'm getting rid of it. That, that wedge, that barrier between me and you, your sin, I'm taking that away. I'm forgiving that. I'm taking it away, out of your way. See, and he did that by how? By absorbing our sin on the cross. 
Isn't that what forgiveness always is? Someone you care about hurts your feelings. What, what do you say? What do you do? You think, okay, well, I forgive you. Why do you forgive them? Well, because you, you value the relationship, so you absorb the wrong done to you. Do you understand? Every wrong you've ever done. Why don't you think about that? Just think about the wrongs you've done last week. The wrongs you've done to other people, the wrongs you've done to God. Think about not just the things you've done, the things you haven't done. The good you've neglected to do. This, this is where I sin the most. There's so many times when I know God's saying, do this good thing. And I'm like, yeah, I should. Huh? And I do my own thing. That's sin. Think about all those things. And those things could, should put this huge wedge between us and God. And God says, I'm going to absorb that on the cross. That's why we have forgiveness. We have forgiveness. But justification is something even kind of grander than that. Because when we talk about forgiveness, we can start thinking about, okay, yeah, yeah, so amazing. Thank you, God, you've forgiven me. And we receive the forgiveness and we feel better, and then we sin again. Like, oh, no, i got to start the whole process over again. But justification means to render innocent. It, mean, it means God looks at us and he says, I see you innocent. We said this this morning, right? That the righteousness that we have because of Christ is God looking at us and saying, I see you as right with me as I see my own dear son. I mean, think about that. That's amazing. That's a free gift. So Paul gives this message. And, and this, is, this is kind of the, the, the heart. It's the beating heart of all that Paul taught. We see this in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4. How many of you guys have read the book of Romans? Okay, if you haven't, you've got to read the book of Romans. It's amazing. Anyway, you should read it again. It's so good. Romans chapter 4. But to him who does not work, that's work for salvation, but believes on him who justified the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God uh, imputes righteousness apart from works. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom God shall not impute sin. In other words, that God won't hold his sin against him. That's awesome. Guys, listen, let me tell you something right now. You will never, ever, ever enjoy a relationship with God unless this gets you excited. Unless this makes you happy. Unless this is the cause of your joy, you're never going to enjoy a relationship with God. You're either going to just do it because you think the people around you want you to do it, and you're going to, get, you're going to fake it for a long time, and you're going to get sick of it, or live a double life. Or you're going to get frustrated because you're going to think, I'm trying my best, and it just seems no matter how good I do, it's never good enough for God. Why? Because you forget that what comes to Jesus is forgiveness and justification. That God gives you this position that he wants you to enjoy him from. So you can imagine these guys hearing this kind of going, oh, I'm blown away. And yet, here's what Paul says. Notice he says, gives a really sober warning. Verse 40 says, beware therefore. Lest what has been spoken of in, in the prophets come upon you. And he quotes Habakkuk 1.5. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I will work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. In other words, no matter how awesome and how clear Paul makes this gospel, he's saying, look, man, be careful because you can still say, ah, I don't want that. I can't believe that. Do you know what keeps us 
Honestly. And I want you to think about this. And I want you to be honest in your own heart. You know what usually keeps us from really trusting in this, this amazing grace of God? We want to save ourselves. We want to be able to say, I did it, God. I did it. We do. That's in our hearts, man. We want to believe we bring something to the table. Okay, okay, maybe I'm not that great, but I, I did some of it, God. Come on. But there's no freedom in that, guys. There's no freedom in that. The only freedom we get is not in keeping laws or doing our best or claiming our own righteousness. The only freedom is in recognizing, Lord, it's you. It's through you only that there's forgiveness of sins. It's by you only that I can believe unto justification to be rendered innocent. Now, Paul's going to deal now with those, the different responses to the gospel. Look what happens. Verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that the words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Man, that's never happened to me. <laughs> Please come to study again next week. Never happened. Okay. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking with them, so here's what Paul and Barnabas do, they speak to them saying, notice, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Isn't that what we talked about this morning? What, what is the cause of our immaturity? We don't value the grace of God. We think, okay, that maybe got me in, in the door, but the rest is up to me. No, man, it's all the grace of God. That's why we just want to continue in the grace of God. All right, God, it's going to be your unmerited favor and your divine enabling the whole way. Now, remember we said where Paul is. What's the region he's in? You guys remember? Galatia. Okay, the region of Galatia, right? Now, Paul eventually writes a letter to the churches that are in Galatia. And this is what he, one of the things he says in the middle. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? What happened? What happened to the churches in Galatia? What happened to the believers in Galatia? What happened to these guys here in Antioch of Pisidia? Same thing that happens to us, right? They thought, okay, yeah, God started it, but it's up to me to finish it. i got to do it. You know what happened? They, someone came and told them a lie, and they believed it. No, guys, we've got to continue in the grace of God. That's why I think it's important, notice that Luke says, that, he, that these guys, Paul and Barnabas, persuaded them. They had to be convinced. You get the idea they had to be convinced over and over and over. You can kind of hear the conversation. Man, just continue in this great grace. I mean, we're really, we're really forgiven. Yes, you are. I mean, we're really rendered innocent before God. Yes, you are. Now, what about, though, yeah, but... No, no, okay, let's go over it again. Here's how it works, you know. Persuading them, yes, it's the grace of God. Yes, this is what you need to continue in. And even still, eventually, they got to a place where Paul said, come on, guys, how moronic can you be? If God had to start this thing in you, do you think you can finish it? It's got to be God who does it. Verse 44. So on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to heard the word of God. That's never happened to me either. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things smoke, uh, spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. 
But notice what he says. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, uh, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, Paul, you notice what Paul's doing here. Paul is holding these unbelievers responsible for rejecting the gospel. This is important to see, especially in this context. Paul's saying, listen, you have rejected it. You've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. It's really important to see that Paul's going, look, okay, if you don't want it, you don't want it. Now, don't, don't think that Paul's just kind of gruff and uncaring. He, he writes really clearly in Romans chapter 10 that he would, he would almost give up his salvation if the nation of Israel could get saved. He loved his people. He was Jewish. Paul was Jewish. Don't forget that. He loved these people. He, he wrote in Romans 11 that God still has a plan. God's going to graft in the nation of Israel. But, but here he is, and he's saying, listen, if you guys are refusing to believe... And he's reminding them of what their goal was or what their calling was as a nation. As a nation, God wanted them to be a light to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, that they would understand that God is the God of Israel. And here they have all these God-fears, these Gentiles there, who they're supposed to help lead to the, to the God of Israel. And like Jesus would have said, I think Paul's thinking the same thing. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you remember? He said, you'll go, man, over land and sea to make a convert, and you make him twice the son of hell as you are. Because all you do is teach him to be a legalist. He's, there's no, he doesn't ever know the freedom that God offers. So it says in verse 48, So when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, I love this because what's cool about this in my mind is when Paul says this, the Gentiles don't, don't say, um, oh, stinking Jews, you guys didn't do it right. They glorify the word of God. They said, thank you, God, for bringing your word to us. And as many as have been appointed to your life, those guys believed. Now, I have a couple of choices with this verse. I can completely ignore what it's saying here, or I could try to twist it to make it say something else, but I'm not going to do either of those things. Because here's the reality. What it says is it's pretty clear, right? As many as had been, past tense, appointed to eternal life, believed. So even though Paul's really clear here that if people reject the gospel, it's their own choice, they're guilty, he's also saying these guys who do believe, they believe because they were chosen before the foundations of the world. You can ask me afterwards how that works, and I will tell you I don't know. So I'll just save you the problem. I'll just save you the time, okay? But the truth is, this is what it, it says. And here's why. Because God gets the glory for saving people. God gets the glory for saving people. Not us. God. He saves people. Let's say this building started on fire. We all got cold. We threw on these really old heaters. And it got really hot in here. The building goes on fire. And I'm like, guys, we've got to get out. The building's on fire. And I force you guys out. I'm chucking you out. Come on, get out. 
And you're all like, no, it's cold outside. Let's go back in. And you go blazing back in. And the flames are getting higher. And I'm like, get out, man. This is stupid. The building's on fire. And I run in there. And I grab one of you. And I pull you out. And I run back in there. And I grab another one. And I pull you out. And then the fire consumes the building. Crash. And those people, you guys who are left in here, you die. Whose fault is it if you die in the building? Who gets the glory for getting you out? You or me? I'm God in this scenario, in case you didn't figure it out. <laughs> That's on the recording. I said I'm God. That's really bad. I'm not God. Just, 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 just an analogy. The, the point is this, okay? It's not that you don't have a choice to make. Obviously, Paul's making it clear you do. The point is, it's God who saves you, not yourself. That's the point. And that's great news, man. That's great news. It's the best news. So it says in verse 49, the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but the Jews stirred up the prominent, the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city and raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. Man, what a bummer. That's also never happened to me yet. But these guys, God's doing this radical thing. The word of God is spreading throughout the region of Galatia. Good things are happening. But what happens? These Jews who, who refuse to believe the gospel, what are they doing? They're stirring up uh, prominent people and making sure that these guys get persecuted and kicked out. Now, if it ended there, you'd think, man, what's the deal? I thought, isn't God in control? Isn't, come on, can't God bring some victory here? But look what happens. Paul and Barnabas, but they shook the, the dust off their feet against them, and they came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, shaking the dust off their feet is a way to kind of say, listen, you don't, if you really don't want us to tell you the gospel anymore, that's fine. We're not coming back. That's pretty much what it is. And we're not coming back. Now, does that mean those guys could never have been saved? I don't, I don't think so. But it definitely means that they were in a very, very scary place. It's a, it's a big deal uh, to blow off God's messengers. It's a really big deal. But what's cool to me about this is the fact that it says the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, even though there was this great resistance against the gospel and the preaching of the gospel, it didn't stop the work of God's Spirit. Now, some people think the disciples here is just a, refer, a reference to Paul and Barnabas and their team. Others say, no, the disciples here is a reference to all these guys in Antioch of Pisidia, who became Christians. Either way, it's pretty cool. Because if Paul and Barnabas went through all this and had to get kicked out, in fact, some Bible scholars believe it was during this time when they were expelled. They weren't just expelled. This is one of the times that Paul was beaten. Because remember he says, three times I was beaten with rods. And the Acts doesn't record all those, so this could have been one of those times. He just didn't mention it. But the truth is, they went through a difficult time, and yet if it is Paul and Barnabas, they're still like filled with the joy and saying, wow, God's doing a good thing. If it's not Paul and Barnabas, it's pretty awesome that, that Luke would make sure that we understand these Gentiles who become Christians were disciples. Not just converts, disciples, Jesus followers. That's what they were. 